0: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today.
1: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV and Resonate Recordings. All individuals described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matter such as violence and graphic descriptions, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
2: Brown County itself is a pretty historical place ripley on the river you know like their cash crop is tobacco as you know yep and then here we have ulysses s grant so they're really doing up the grand stuff um
1: they're all about their murals right now
2: they're all about jesus too this is like whole block building is a giant jesus with the ten commandments on the stones Thou shalt not kill. Living in this town, you've mentioned how, like, quaint and cute and quiet it is, and it really is, but I think also living here, we kind of put blinders on and anything nefarious that might be going on behind closed doors or behind the scenes. You know, I think there's a lot of skeletons in this county's closet. It's just trying to figure out and determine who the skeleton is in this one. I have multiple people telling me close to this case that I should know who this person is. This person chose that yellow jeep, whether it was Brittany or whether thinking it was Shane, it was calculated to some degree. It was not random, it was purposeful, and whether it was a lethal message or just a message in general, I'm really getting the sense that the rumors around town for the past nine years aren't all that off, that there there was a message of some kind being sent.
1: I'm encouraged though that while they can't divulge certain information to us that it does seem like they've known something and I like to think that we can get there too. As a culpable listener, you know the world can be a dangerous and unpredictable place. One thing I've learned working in true crime is that your best line of defense is vigilance and preparation, which is why I recommend simply safe Home Security. I happen to live in a pretty nice neighborhood, but as you know, crime has a way of being anywhere at any time, even when you least expect it. When our car was broken into and items were stolen, I was so relieved to know that my home security system got the footage, and it eventually led to us being reimbursed by the perpetrator once they were caught crime is just waiting to happen so be prepared at all times and equip yourself with simply safe the best home security system of 2024 according to US news and world report simply safe has given me and many of my listeners real peace of mind and i want you to have it too get 20% off any new simply safe system when you sign up for fast protect monitoring just visit simplysave.com/ slash culpable. That's simplysave.com/ slash culpable. There's no safe like
3: safe. Do you ever wish you could become a detective and help find the clues to the case? How about all of that in a mobile game that you can take anywhere? In June's journey, each scene leads to a new thrilling storyline— Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android.
1: The actress Muriel Enos once said, It's kind of part of human nature to want to know the truth or want to be in on the secret. For stories that focus in on that, like whodunits, it's easy to get drawn to. In the case of Brittany Stikes, I've found these words to ring true. I could go on and on about the reasons I make investigative podcasts, but at the heart of it is a burning desire to seek justice for both a victim and their family. On the other hand, the reason I'm drawn to a certain story, or a certain case, is different. And it stands more in line with the quote I just shared. In Brittany's case, I wanted to hear the secrets. I wanted to find the truth. When you do an investigative podcast, you're basically telling two stories. The main story, the more important one, being the victim's story, in this case, Brittany Stikes. But the other story that runs parallel is the journey of the people investigating, in this case, myself and my producer Jessica. Though to say these stories run parallel may be a stretch. Our investigation has mirrored the same roller coaster ride that all of Britney's loved ones have been on for nearly a decade now, the highs, the lows twists, and turns, which is why for me, I'd like to try and make things a little more linear as we close things out here. If you've remembered everything you've heard over the course of this podcast, hats off to you. But I believe it's helpful to rehash what we've learned in a succinct way. If not for you, the listener, then for me, who finds myself for the first time really stopping to reflect on the journey. Some of the audio you're gonna recognize and some you've never heard before but all of it should be helpful. I can't tell you who is responsible for the death of Brittany Stikes. That's up to a jury to decide someday. But I'll do my best to help you reach whatever you find to be the most logical conclusion in the end. With that said, let's start at the beginning. As you know, Brittany Stikes was murdered on August 28th, 2013. But for me, her story began many years later, in 2021. My producer Jessica is the one who shared her story with me, telling me all about this frustrating case in her hometown of a young mother killed in cold blood on a busy highway. Also lost in the act was Brittany's unborn child, which she was pregnant with at the time. And her one-year-old daughter Aubrey, who was in the Jeep, seated next to Brittany, was shot in the head. Thankfully, she made a full recovery. Now, again, I could go on and on about why I was drawn to this case, but if I'm being honest, the synopsis I just shared with you alone was about enough to make me want to dive in headfirst. When I heard a pregnant woman was shot and killed and thought about her surviving one-year-old daughter who was left behind without her mother to raise her, it was time to make any and every effort possible to find out who's culpable. So I traveled to Brown County, Ohio. I met up with Jessica. And we talked about the case, some of our theories. We talked about a game plan, who all we wanted to interview, etc. We started with Brittany's parents, Dave and Mary Dodson, who live in the town of Ripley. We met them at their home, which they call Red Oak Creek Farm. Good morning, Dave. Good morning. Good to see you again. It was August 28th, 2021, the eight-year anniversary of Brittany's death. We stayed the entire day with them. We learned a lot about Brittany as a person. How she was the middle child of five siblings. How she looked after and helped raise her two younger siblings, especially her little sister Emily. Brittany was a kind and loving spirit who cherished time with family.
4: Brittany had a way about her. She loved people. She loved life. She had that energy about her. You know what I mean?
1: Brittany was different from a lot of the other kids her age, undistracted by the trivial drawn to the meaningful. Family was at the center. During the day, she might be found fixing up a car with her father, Dave, and at night, she'd help her younger siblings get ready for bed and read them a story before tucking them in. In the summers, she'd help Mary prep for the local fair, which they were always very active in. And Brittany would even take part in the pageant which was held there.
5: Good evening, I'm Brittany Dodson, the proud daughter of Mary and David Dotson of Ripley, Ohio. I attend Ripley High School, and after graduation, I plan to attend AMI and further my job in motorcycle construction.
1: We learned, unsurprisingly, that Brittany lived a good life, that none of her interests or actions would have ever led to the fate which she met, a life worth remembering, worth celebrating.
4: We come here to remember
1: Brittany and... Every year, on August 28th, Brittany's family holds a memorial service, off the side of US Highway 68, where the tragedy took place. And we, of course, went that year. After meeting Brittany's family, we spoke with her husband, Shane Stikes. Brittany and Shane met a few years before the murder. There was an instant connection between the two of them. She was like my best friend. Then I fell in love with her.
6: She was a good balance for me. You know, She was the chill to
1: my chaos. The couple quickly settled down, and it wasn't long after that Brittany learned she was pregnant. Her friend Samantha is the one who noticed it.
7: She was literally glowing, and I was like, come here for a second. I said, uh, you're pregnant.
1: Brittany soon gave birth to her first child, Aubrey Stikes. And to no one's surprise, she was a pro, a gifted and dedicated mother.
7: She was so kind and nurturing to her. Aubrey was Brittany's best friend. Like, she loved that little girl to pieces. Loved her.
1: Just a year later, Brittany learned she was pregnant a second time. Again, courtesy of her friend Samantha.
7: And she was like, shut the hell up, I am not pregnant. And I said, Brittany, I said, I told you the first time you're pregnant. I'm telling you, you're pregnant now.
1: Baby number two was officially on the way. But Brittany's family was shocked when she didn't appear to carry the same excitement and enthusiasm she had with the news of Aubrey. This time, things were noticeably different. Apparently, Brittany didn't even break the news to Shane for several months. According to both Mary and Samantha, they say she was worried about how he'd react. And to their point... They also both said that when she did finally break the news in early August of 2013, it didn't go over well.
7: Brittany called me, and it was late at night, and she was, (laughs) couldn't breathe, like, crying, and I was like, Brittany, what's wrong? Like, (laughs) honey, you've got to stop crying. Tell me what's wrong. And she is like, Shane left. I told him that I was pregnant, and he said that he didn't want any more kids and was throwing stuff and, and cussing me out.
1: Shane admits he was far from excited about the news. Shane had two kids from other relationships that he and Brittany were raising in addition to Aubrey, so this would have made number four. And financially, they were not well off. But Shane says he reassured her that they would adapt and find a way to make it work, just as they had before.
6: I mean, don't get me wrong, I was not rainbows and sunshine, you know. I was like, what? What are you talking about? (laughs) Are you serious right now? You're playing jokes, right? But I just told her, I was like, look, it's going to be all right. We'll just do what we got to do.
1: According to Brittany's family, Shane did appear to show a change of heart in regards to the baby on the way. Brittany's sister, Emily, who practically lived with her and Shane, said it such.
5: She's like, well, he now all of a sudden he's excited and he wants this baby and all of a sudden he says he's going to change and everything's going to get better and I just don't understand it.
1: But according to Emily, Brittany was making plans to leave Shane.
5: She goes, "I, I can't do this. I don't want Aubrey seeing her parents fight and hate each other all the time. She's like, I can't, I can't do that. So we started boxing her stuff up and then two weeks went by and... She was gone.
1: That day she's referring to is August 28th, 2013, the day of the murder. Feeling now that we had a good grasp on Brittany's backstory, we were ready to begin our investigation, which really started with analyzing the events of this day.
7: That morning, I had spoken to Brittany, and she said that she was going to go to Shane's mom's house to fill out this application for this government job.
1: At 9.15 a.m., she texted her mother-in-law, Kathy, to let her know she was on the way. But before making it there, as she was driving down her street, Chicken Hollow, she was involved in an incident. Her friend Samantha received the notification about it.
7: She texted me and she said, somebody in a van ran her off the side of the road on Chicken Hollow.
1: We really don't know much about the incident, as no report was filed to our knowledge. But it's our understanding that some words were exchanged and the drivers went their separate ways. At some point, Brittany sent that text message to Samantha. And Shane told us that he too had heard about the text message, though not directly from Brittany. And it said, like, ran off the road, and a guy in a
6: effing... C-U-N-T, you know? And my wife did not talk like that. It must have been a serious altercation for my wife to be that
1: upset. Shane also heard some other rumors. One being that there were two people in the car that day, a male and a female. Samantha, on the other hand, only remembers hearing about a male driving the car. But they did both remember that the vehicle involved in the incident was a gray minivan. Although, Shane also had this to say. I heard about
6: two different makes and models of vehicles. Okay? One vehicle was on the scene at the time of the incident, speeding away. Another vehicle was described in the
1: altercation that morning. This is all we've been able to gather from the morning incident that Brittany was involved in. Again, we were unable to find any reports filed from this. So let's pick up from here. After texting Samantha, Brittany continued on her way to Kathy's house. She spoke with her mom just before arriving there.
4: Well, I said, honey, what are you going to do? And she goes, well, I'm going to go here. I'm going to use the computer, and Kathy wants me to have dinner with her and everything else, and then she says, we'll be out for Dad's
8: birthday.
1: As a reminder, it was her father, Dave's, birthday. They had planned to celebrate at the Dodson's house that night, once Brittany had finished everything she planned to do. So she went to Kathy's house, and it's our understanding that she filled out the application. And then Brittany spoke with Shane over the phone. She talked to me at lunch and, and said, uh, do you want to just go
6: home and grab some clothes and meet me at your mom's and we'll stay all night here? And I, was, I thought that was weird. It just didn't make any sense to me.
1: Shane found the request to stay at his mom's house very odd. It wasn't something they'd usually do. And he knew that she had plans to go over to her parents' house that evening and likely stay pretty late into Aubrey's bedtime. So none of it made sense to him. Now, we're getting a little ahead of ourselves on the timeline, but I want to take a second to point out something of importance here. You have to remember that when Shane had this call with Brittany, he was unaware of the incident she'd just been involved in on Chicken Hollow. For whatever reason, Brittany didn't tell him about it when they spoke over the phone. But looking back now, Shane believes there was more to both the odd request to stay at his mom's house and the morning incident that she was involved in.
6: I feel like that phone call means she knew they told her something that is the key to solving this murder is to figure out what
1: happened on that morning altercation and who it was but again he didn't know this at the time all he knew was that britney was at his mom's house and she made an odd request to stay the night there to which shane declined and then they both went on about their day Shane was at work when they spoke over the phone. He got off work around 5 p.m. that day and then went to the Power Source gym in Decatur where he frequented. My routine was
6: go to work, get off, I drove an hour and a half to home, go to the gym, work out for 2 or 3 hours, come home, eat dinner, say hi to everybody, go to bed, do the same thing. That was my
1: routine basically. For the most part, Shane followed his routine that day. The only difference was, he chose not to head home that day, after work. Instead, he'd planned to head straight to the Power Source gym when his shift ended. And then
6: I got off and went to the gym, worked out. I got home at like, probably 10 till 9. And I pulled in the driveway, and and she wasn't there yet. So I just thought, well, I thought she was at her dad's or whatever. I ate some leftovers that was not the leftovers that she was going to bring home, you know. There was
1: other stuff in the fridge. I ate that, and then I fell asleep. But while Shane was carrying on with his evening routine, eventually calling it a night and going to bed, Brittany, on the other hand, well, you know where this is going. That evening, around 7 p.m., she left Kathy's house. To the best of our knowledge, she was headed straight to her parents' house, for Dave's birthday celebration. Though it's possible she planned to make a quick stop at her and Shane's house to drop off leftovers from Kathy. Brittany's last communication was actually a text message sent to Kathy at 7.15 p.m. She said, It's raining up in town, just a ways from your house. Aubrey was out five minutes ago. The Jeep was last seen at 7.32 p.m. on a camera at the First Stop Marathon gas station in Georgetown. And approximately 10 minutes later, she's driving southbound on Highway 68, a two-lane highway, with Aubrey seated next to her. And this is when we know the murder to have occurred, just before sundown. But shortly after, around 8 p.m., a couple from North Carolina, who just happened to be passing through, made a wrong turn on 68. As they attempted to get back on track, they spotted headlights beaming up from the side of the highway.
9: Then I noticed the jeep in the woods down off the shoulder of the road. Something's telling me I need to stop.
1: Craig LaBelle, an unlikely hero, would be the one to discover the gruesome scene.
9: And she was just kind of slumped, laid back in the seat with her head tilted to the side. And, and there's a baby in a car seat. And the baby's got blood all over its forehead not saying a word, just that blank look. And then looks toward the driver and says, Mama, I just went into straight panic mode. Craig
1: dialed 911, and emergency services were dispatched. Meanwhile, Dave and Mary sat on the back patio of their home, along with their daughter Emily, preparing for the night's celebration and Brittany's impending arrival but they never heard her come through those doors. Instead, they heard a sound that still haunts them to this day.
4: Sirens just start going off like a madhouse. And I looked at Dave, and Dave looked at me, and I said, Dave, it's Brittany.
1: Eventually, Dave jumped in his truck and drove to the scene.
10: And when I get up there, the one on the fire department, he says, well, I can't talk to you. I'll have to get one of the deputies up here to talk to you. The driver's deceased, but they're air care your granddaughter. You need to be at
1: Children's. As you know, Brittany had been shot and killed. Her unborn child died as a result. Aubrey, just a year old at the time, had been shot in the head and was rushed to the hospital, where after months of surgeries, she made a full recovery. A funeral was eventually held for both Brittany and the baby, and afterwards they were buried. This would begin a tumultuous relationship between the Dodsons and Shane. They fought over the burial, and eventually the Dodsons got their way, burying the two on a plot of land they owned. Dave challenged Shane to help cover the costs, but no agreement was ever made. But Shane had filed a claim with the Ohio Victims of Crime Compensation Program just a couple weeks after Brittany's death, and shortly after her burial, he was awarded $50,000. Seventy five hundred of it ended up going to the funeral home to cover half the costs. And then came the next quarrel between the Dodsons and Shane a custody battle over Aubrey. The Dodsons pursued full custody, but eventually they reached a settlement. They would have Aubrey every other weekend, some holidays, and four weeks in the summer. Shane would have her the rest of the time. Over time, Tensions among the Dodsons and Shane diffused. Now, they focus on raising Aubrey and maintaining a cordial relationship. But while all this was going on, a murder investigation had commenced at the Brown County Sheriff's Office, and Shane was being looked at as a person of interest. He was very critical about the early parts of the investigation. It was so disorganized and ridiculous.
6: The people that they had on this case... It was like Barney Fife or something. It
1: was terrible. Shane says he had a good reputation in Brown County, but all the negative attention forced him to move out of there. According to the Ledger Independent, Shane was eventually cleared as a person of interest through comments made to the media by Sheriff Dwayne Winninger, who stated that Shane had, quote, no involvement in the offense. Unfortunately, most of the former lead detectives wouldn't talk to us, so it's difficult to confirm a lot of the history in this case. But we were able to speak with Captain Chad Noble, who was the lead detective on the case for a spell before eventually handing the reins to current lead, Sergeant Carlson. Such an unbelievable crime that doesn't happen in this county. This was a completely innocent woman. And somebody ended her life and that of her child that she was pregnant with and injured her other child. I mean, one of the most horrendous crimes I've ever heard of in my entire life. Captain Noble tells us that he exhausted every avenue during his time as the lead detective. Was she the intended victim? Was somebody mad at her? Was somebody jealous of her? Was it a random act? Did she pull out in front of somebody? Did she cut somebody off? I mean, the the options will drive you crazy. It's been a frustrating investigation, to say the least. A thought which was echoed by Noble's inferior, and now the lead detective on Brittany's case, Sergeant Quinn Carlson.
8: This is a true whodunit, because you can look at this from all the normal angles of casework, of homicide investigations, all the different ways they tell you to look at
1: it, and every one will lead you to a different conclusion. One of the biggest headaches that the Brown County Sheriff's Office has faced throughout the years is false leads. Sergeant Carlson says this case has been full of wrong directions. Now, I just want to take a second to say, before we get into any names here, that Sergeant Carlson has also made it clear to us that no one is officially crossed off his list. But that said, there have been plenty of names thrown around in this case, and we did our best to look into each of these names. The first few names came the night of the murder, courtesy of Shane, when officers asked him who he thinks could have been responsible for murdering Brittany. He named Brittany's ex, Dusty Puckett, his neighbor, Jerry Seidner, and a man he'd had a couple run-ins with, Donald Chamberlain. The only one we were actually able to sit down and speak with was Brittany's ex, Dusty. There was a rumor that Brittany feared Dusty after their breakup, so we asked him about this.
8: She did file for a restraining order for me at one point in time, and that
6: was completely misinterpreted. She said I was stalking her, but I was
1: at Walmart with a buddy, and that was cleared up. But still, the Brown County Sheriff's Office remained very focused on Dusty.
6: I was one of the top suspects on the list because I was an
8: ex-boyfriend.
6: It felt like they had shown up there that they already had pinned me. I said, you've got video of me, you know, being at work and school and know every phone call that I've ever made for the past two years. You know yourself, there's no way that... I had anything to
1: do with this. That all proved to be true. Dusty's alibi checked out, and he also passed polygraph tests. The Brown County Sheriff's Office also investigated the other two men that Shane named, Jerry Seidner and Donald Chamberlain. Long story short, Shane was involved in verbal altercations with both of these men on separate occasions. He had one reported run-in with Jerry and two with Donald. We found a phone number for Jerry Seidner and reached out, but unfortunately, he wouldn't talk to us. We had a little bit better luck with Donald Chamberlain. We tracked him down at his home and had a very brief exchange. He clearly didn't want to talk about the case, and he warned us to stay far away from everyone involved in it. Unfortunately, we've been unable to confirm these men's alibis, as the appropriate detectives wished not to talk to us but I'll just say that I've been given no reason to believe that any of them are being looked at heavily as a person of interest at this point. To be fair, there never appeared to be any real traction with these men, and to our knowledge, they weren't ever named in the local media. They only came up during our investigation because they were named in the police report. But not long after the early leads fizzled out, a new person of interest emerged, and this name did make headlines. In fact, For a short time, it appeared as though the Brown County Sheriff's Office had their guy. The man was Tommy Lopez. He emerged seemingly out of the blue around August of 2015, just two years after the murder, when he was locked away on unrelated drug charges. Neither Shane nor the Dodsons had a clue who he was. In fact, it seemed no one had a clue how his name would have come up as a person of interest in Brittany's case. But it was later revealed that it all stemmed from information given by an informant who happened to be Lopez's girlfriend at the time, and the account she gave was chilling, to say the least. When we covered this at length a while back, we were working off of media reports from 2015 that cited various passages of an affidavit filed around that time, but we didn't have access to the affidavit itself. Well, since then we obtained access, so let's go over it together. Bear with me, there's a lot to cover here. The informant, known as C.W. in the affidavit, had actually accused Tommy of multiple murders, a few of which she claimed she witnessed herself, Brittany being one of those. Here's what she described to authorities per the affidavit. Again, they refer to her as C.W. in the report. It says in part, The CW informed law enforcement that Tommy Lopez had murdered a female in Brown County, Ohio. The CW stated that the victim was Brit and was payback for her old man not paying Tommy Lopez money that he owed. The CW stated that she was with Tommy Lopez at the time of the murder, and they were in a white automobile owned by The CW stated that they saw a yellow Jeep at a gas station and followed it for 20 to 25 minutes. The CW stated that Tommy Lopez was utilizing a GPS, which was subsequently stored at the driverage self-storage. The CW stated that he had a police light that plugs into an automobile cigarette lighter, and he utilized it on the date in question to pull over the yellow Jeep and make the driver believe that he was a police officer. The CW stated that she saw a handgun in Tommy Lopez's waistband, the CW stated that Tommy Lopez argued with the CW about what he was doing, and she punched him. When the Jeep stopped, Tommy Lopez exited the vehicle, in which he and the CW were riding, walked up to the yellow Jeep, and fired several shots. The CW stated that the gun was larger than a twenty-two caliber because the rounds were larger. The CW stated that Tommy Lopez got back in the vehicle with her. The CW stated that she looked through the window and saw the woman, and she was bloody. The CW stated that Tommy Lopez received two payments of $10,000 from another individual for committing the murder. Deputy Marvin Goodrich of the Owen County Sheriff's Office contacted Chief Deputy Carl Smith of the Brown County, Ohio Sheriff's Department and relayed this information to him. On July 2nd, 2015, Chief Deputy Carl Smith and Detective Haney of the Brown County Sheriff's Office arrived at the CW's address to collect her so that she could take them to the scene of the murder in Brown County, Ohio. The CW stated that on the date of the murder, Tommy Lopez put an address in the GPS and they departed for Brown County, Ohio, with Tommy Lopez driving and the CW riding in the passenger seat. The CW indicated that she did not know the exact route that she and Tommy Lopez took to arrive there on the date of the murder, but they had gone through Maysville up US-68. When the CW and officers passed Georgetown Rich Station, the CW stated that this was the area where Tommy Lopez saw the victim, Brit, and the yellow Jeep. The CW stated this is where Tommy Lopez turned around and began following the victim's Jeep southbound on US 68. The CW stated that when they got to a rural part of the road, Tommy Lopez reached into the backseat of the vehicle in which they were traveling and removed the police light. The CW stated that Tommy Lopez plugged in the light and pulled the victim over. The CW pointed to a spot close to the milepost 14 of US-68, which is a couple hundred feet south of Goose Lick in US-68. The CW indicated that this is where the murder took place. The CW stated that she saw Tommy Lopez exit the vehicle, breach in his waistband, remove the handgun, and fire several shots into the victim's Jeep. The CW stated that Tommy Lopez ran back to the vehicle and drove around the victim's Jeep. The CW said that they drove south a short distance and then turned around and went home the way that she had showed officers. In summary, it was reported that, quote, the location details and circumstances of Miss Stikes' murder provided by the CW were accurate and consistent with fiance investigation and based upon fiance experience and training, established knowledge on the part of the CW well beyond that of the general public. The informant also stated that Tommy Lopez would take trophy photos of his victims and kept them in a little black case, which he keeps in a black gym bag, adding that they might be located in hiding, either behind the walls or behind fixtures in Lopez's home. The informant pointed authorities to his residence in Williamstown, Kentucky, where a search warrant was executed. Authorities recovered various letters and notebooks, 10 cell phones, a computer, a camera, a black 12-gauge Remington shotgun with the serial number scratched off, and four rounds of ammunition. She also pointed authorities to a storage unit behind the Dry Ridge Motor Inn in Dry Ridge, Kentucky, where she claimed Lopez stored drugs, namely methamphetamine, as well as guns and money. Authorities executed a search warrant of the storage unit, where they found a cut-off straw thought to be drug paraphernalia, but nothing else of consequence. A search warrant was also executed at Hudnell's Garage and Wrecker Service in Owenton, Kentucky, on a white 2005 GMC van registered to Tommy Lopez. This was the vehicle that Tommy Lopez was driving on June 30, 2015, when he was arrested on unrelated drug charges. A search of the van revealed a tube sock containing a hard circular object tied off in the toe area of the sock, believed to be a weapon, an aluminum bat, knotted rope, chain held together with a carabiner, black gloves, notes, notepads, and two keychains with keys. Lastly, authorities spoke with the owner of the vehicle that the informant claimed she and Tommy had borrowed and were using the day of the murder, which was described as a white Ford Taurus. The woman confirmed that Lopez would borrow the vehicle from time to time, and also mentioned the same blue light which the informant had spoken of, which could be plugged into the cigarette lighter of an automobile. She stated that Tommy Lopez had used it to pull her over on two occasions. On August 25, 2015, Lopez was interviewed at the Carroll County Detention Center. It was reported that Lopez appeared very nervous during questioning. He denied owning a blue light, and said he only drove the white Ford Taurus when the driver was present, which she was not said to have been that day. He also denied selling drugs, though he did admit to owning a 9mm and 380 handgun and a single-shot shotgun. As for the Brittany Stikes case, he stated he didn't even know where Brown County, Ohio was located, and ultimately he denied any knowledge of Brittany's murder. A review of audio recordings from both in-person visits and calls placed by Tommy Lopez was more cause for suspicion. In one call, Lopez instructed his mother to get all of his stuff at her house, and said quote, Make sure them boys stay out of everything because it's real important that they stay out of it. Stay out of my boxes and stuff, they like to prowl. They're gonna get a search warrant for the house, the storage locker, and my cell phones, and records and stuff like that. That's what they're talking about. That's why I don't need them boxes messed with. During another telephone conversation, Lopez again told his mother to not let anyone in the boxes. And his mother said that the boxes were put up in a room where the kids won't get into them. During another conversation, Lopez's mother told him that they had moved items out of storage bins and moved them to a residence in Williamstown, Kentucky. In one call, Lopez expressed concerns about the case in Ohio. He expressed frustration that he's being labeled as a danger to society because of alleged gang ties, but later said that he isn't worried about rumors because, quote, they gotta have actual proof. Well, it appears that authorities were never able to find proof of his involvement. So we wanted to see what we could find. We first spoke with an inmate at the Chillicothe Correctional Facility who claimed to have information related to this. He told us that his information is secondhand and pointed us in the direction of a fellow inmate who could give a first-hand account of information related to Tommy Lopez and the murder of Brittany Sykes. So we reached out to him. For legal reasons, I'll just say the inmate described a phone call he'd had with Lopez on the day of the murder, in which some comments were made that he felt alluded to Lopez's involvement. While he was able to give a detailed account of the phone call, and the day it happened, overall, no details were given that could help further assert a degree of culpability. And lastly, we tracked down the informant who started it all, Tommy's ex-girlfriend. Again, For legal reasons, I'm not going to go into the details of this conversation. She was very scared to talk with us, and says she fears for her life. But eventually she did open up, and all I can say is that her story has not changed. To this day, Tommy Lopez has not been charged in relation to Brittany's murder or any of the murders his ex-girlfriend accused him of. When I asked Sergeant Carlson about Lopez, he wouldn't outright dismiss him as a person of interest, though knowing Carlson, that's not a surprise. But we did receive a comment from the Brown County Sheriff's Office in relation to the informant who accused Lopez. All they said was, quote, we caught her in deceptive actions attempting to fabricate evidence. I'm sorry for the long detour. There's just a lot to be said about Tommy Lopez. Make of it as you wish. Personally, I don't know what to think. But all in all, it appears as though this could just be another false lead. Like I said, False leads have caused a lot of headache for the Brown County Sheriff's Office over the years, and still to this day. But I want to go in a different direction now, as leads haven't been the only cause of frustration for detectives. In Brittany's case, it's also the evidence, or lack thereof, that has been frustrating to deal with. Even Wayne Wallace, a professor of criminal justice and forensic psychology, made a similar comment when we spoke with him.
11: We're looking at something that is incomplete to make informed decisions, you need as much information and data as possible. So there's more missing than is present.
1: As far as evidence gathered at the scene, to our knowledge, there wasn't much. Brown County's Deputy Sean Inlow, who was with Georgetown PD when the murder happened, was the first responder. As he followed the Jeep down into the woods that night, he established the angle at which the Jeep entered the woods. He remembered it going off quite a drop-off, but it felt even more significant after revisiting the scene.
11: It's crazy because I don't remember that creek being there. I don't know how that Jeep could have got across that, but it definitely did. I think there was like a little tree. It was right in the front of the Jeep and the Jeep was kind of like up on it. And I think the trees is what kind of slowed, slowed its process down. Sorry, if I remember correctly, she had her seatbelt on. Yeah, the doors were closed and the car was on, but it was not running. My theory is, obviously, is that she she was out and just ran, and then the car stalled. It was a five-speed, so the car would stall if it was left in gear.
1: Even Sergeant Carlson said that from the outset, it appeared she had to have been moving with speed. That doesn't necessarily mean that she was moving at a high speed when the shooting occurred, only that she had reached a high speed before taking her last breath. In other words, she could have been at a standstill when the shots were fired. According to the police narrative from the night of August 28, there were five bullet holes found in the Jeep. They appeared to be entry holes, as all were found on the driver's side. Three in the metal door frame, and two in the plastic window. No exit holes were described in the narrative. Authorities stated that based on the surrounding vegetation, it looked as though the shots occurred elsewhere, likely up on the highway, rather than down in the woods. For years, this was all that got out to the public regarding the Jeep as the Brown County Sheriff's Office had it locked away as evidence. But Shane wanted the Jeep back. That's how I met
6: Brittany. She was in love with this Jeep. Why would I want to give that up just for one bad memory? I'm not giving that up.
1: And eventually, after a short legal battle, Shane got his way. The Jeep was released back to him. According to the News Democrat, Brown County Prosecutor Zach Corbin was not pleased with the ruling, saying, quote, you can't possibly forecast everything that could come up in the future. Who's to say that something won't come up in the future, that it wouldn't be beneficial for us to have that Jeep in our possession? But the decision was made, and Shane was happy to finally have his Jeep back. Though, upon receiving it, he was met with a rude awakening.
6: You know, it was rough. Opening the door, and, and you know, all my wife's blood was, like, piled up, like a... Stalagmite, all the shit that was in there, like Aubrey's diaper bag, and it wasn't a robbery because obviously the diamonds there, the cash. She had like two, three hundred dollars in cash on her.
1: But what really concerned Shane was what he found when he looked in the cup holder.
6: And I reached in the thing to get change, and I was like, "What in the hell?" And it was a spent bullet.
1: According to Captain Chad Noble, the bullet turned out to be nothing. No clue on how it got there, when it got there, or why it was placed there. I can just tell you, like, it was the wrong caliber. I would say somebody
6: put it in there, whether on purpose or accident.
1: But there was some other evidence Shane described, which was of substance. That being exit holes, which again were not described in the police narrative we obtained. There were three exit holes in the passenger side door two of them roughly two to three inches apart in the top left corner of the plastic window, and another about a foot down to the left in the canvas around the window. The exit hole supported the medical examiner's determination that the bullets had traveled at a slightly upward angle, but they also raised some questions. And there's one additional hole found in the front windshield on the passenger side that's even harder to explain. Shane noticed it when he got his Jeep back and he's never been able to make sense of the trajectory. But from what he saw, he's confident it's an exit hole.
6: I know that's the bullet that went through Aubrey's head because when I went and got the Jeep, there was pieces of skin and skull stuck in the glass with Aubrey's hair in it.
1: Remember, Aubrey was backward-facing in the passenger seat. Emily told us that if Brittany was only driving with Aubrey in the Jeep, she'd often put her in the front seat where she'd be more accessible in case of emergency. When we spoke with our expert, Wayne, who reviewed photos of the Jeep, he concurred that when you zoom in, you can in fact see hair around the hole, further asserting the idea of it being an exit hole, but making it nonetheless troubling.
11: So we're talking about a bullet that entered the side of the victim, went through her lung, her heart, her other lung, exited, went through her arm, exited her arm, then went over and hit the child in the head, did its damage, and then took a 45-degree turn into the windshield? That doesn't make any sense. The
1: ballistics were something we discussed in great detail with Wayne. And while it's impossible to assert exactly how the shooting was carried out, the ballistics do paint somewhat of a picture.
11: First, to understand these things, we have to take our own expectations of the way we think physical evidence will behave and set it aside because the craziest stuff happens in real life. We'll have at least five shots in about a two and a half foot area of car door and this person hit what they aimed at. There's a very carefully constructed moment where a shooter could deliver five rounds on target on the roadway and not witnessed by somebody else. They had to go to some effort to do this. So this was some punishment for some perceived wrong or offense that occurred. I really doubt this is just some passing incident of road rage.
1: So this begs the question, was she moving when the shooting occurred, or was she at a standstill? We asked the Dodsons if they think it's possible that she could have pulled over and therefore been at a stop when the shooting occurred and they said that the only reason she would have pulled over for someone was if she knew them personally or it was a police officer. We've heard plenty of theories throughout our investigation, but the only person who really seems to think they know what happened to Brittany is Shane. He opened up to us about this. I have my ideas, yeah. And the police are all aware
6: of that. I think that they drove around her to the left to pass fired the shots, and I think my wife then veered off the road because she had been shot three times.
1: I believe it was intentional, and I believe it was a message from someone. To clarify, Shane believes it was a message to him. I was doing something positive because
6: of what I seen going on around me in my community. There was a lot of crime, and I wanted to do something about that. So I did what I thought I needed to do, and I think that got under someone's skin. You know, I wasn't narking people out or running my mouth about people, nothing like that. I wasn't doing anything. I was literally just looking for a
1: new career, and uh,
6: then this happens.
1: The career that Shane was looking to get into was law enforcement. He believes this move would have been motivation for someone to send a message. In this case, we're talking murdering his wife. While he wouldn't tell us who he believes is responsible, he was clear on how he felt about the person. He knows he's a lowlife, he
6: knows he's a coward, he knows he's a piece of shit, and that's all he's ever been and ever will be. I don't know anything about this dude's personal life except for one thing, and it's not like I'm the only person in the world that knew this. Everyone knew this.
1: When asked if Brittany would have known and recognized this man, Shane told us that she would have known him when she was younger, but there's a good chance she wouldn't have recognized him. As a reminder, Shane believes there were two people, a male and a female, involved in the morning incident on Chicken Hollow. Furthermore, Shane told us that the two different vehicles he heard about from the morning incident, one a gray van, the other unknown to us, both match vehicles driven by the man he believes committed the murder. Now, I can't say that any of what Shane is saying is true. All I can say is that when I asked Sergeant Carlson about Shane's beliefs, he didn't dismiss it. But Carlson doesn't dabble in conjecture. Instead, he's laser-focused on a specific direction he's taking the investigation in. I'm trying to recreate data and information that was
8: there back in 2013. And there have been a lot of advancements recently in technology, and I'm utilizing as many of those as I possibly can. I had to reach out and get a lot of assistance from federal agencies, and they have been unbelievably helpful and unbelievably willing to help. Uh, The assets they've been able to provide are wonderful, and it's allowed us to take these steps, and it's allowed us to try
1: new avenues that were never available before. In all, Carlson is very optimistic about where things are headed. There's a direction
8: right now. There's a, there's a specific direction. I'm, I'm not going to necessarily say there's a person, or I'm not going to say, like, why, but I can say there is a distinct direction the case is taken right now, and I feel
1: very positive in that direction. We decided that we too would put stock in the angle that Carlson's taking, but we also wanted to try and learn more about what exactly that angle is, and how technology could play a part in solving Brittany's case. One of our producers connected us with a man named Sai Ray. Sai is an industry-leading expert in obtaining and analyzing cellular data as it pertains to historical communication, user identification, and device location. Basically... He's an expert at using cell phone data to reconstruct the past. Here's what he had to say. This is a classic cell phone case.
10: And what's really good about this case is we have multiple locations. You know, we have the incident in the morning that she reports. We know that she went to the husband's mother's house. Obviously, we know the incident that everything happened. That's another location we could collect this digital exhaust. And now we could start kind of sorting through all that data? And do we see a common device other than hers? You know, the morning with the incident, the road rage incident, the van, what if we found a mobile phone that was in that area that was also in the area of the mother-in-law's house later in the afternoon? And that's where, you know, this is such a classic example of a really good investigation focusing on the mobile devices should really start providing some really good insights to what was going on that day.
1: Sai tells us there's many ways that our data is tracked, but the main way it's done is through our apps.
10: So the whole idea behind consumer applications and kind of this advertisement IDs is that the way we interact with our phones, and this could be across the board from websites and searches I do on search engines to where I, I pause or stagnate in my Facebook feed to how often I open my camera app. All of that's being collected and it's building this profile about who I am as a person. So there's a number of companies out there that have really specialized in collecting this type of consumer data, if you will. you know, For lack of a better term, Google is the biggest one. And what they're doing is every time you use one of their services, they're collecting those little data inputs. And as you interact with Google a number of different ways, with the maps, they see where you go. And this was being used behind kind of the veil for years and it was never intended to be a law enforcement product in fact when law enforcement figured out the power of this data there was a lot of pushback from these companies to even allow law enforcement to use it but as law enforcement started engaging more and more and was able to articulate you know probable cause search warrants to recover this data because it is relevant to a criminal investigation it started opening these doors
1: and this in a nutshell is what Sai imagines Carlson is using in his investigation. But it will come with its challenges, as Sai says there are multiple scenarios you have to consider here.
10: The first scenario is this was a targeted event, which means somebody intended to kill her that day. And they're either following her around or it's there's something that was set up at a particular time. I could do a reverse location search through Google, for example. And I could basically tell Google Through a search warrant. Hey, here's the area around the mother in law's house. I want from this time period to this time period, any device that you guys collected information on. One of the things that I like to do is not just look at the time of the crime, but maybe days after, days before. Where do we see a cell phone that randomly pops up at the mother in law's house that is also seen at the crime scene itself, but two days prior? It was actually at their house while she was gone and the husband was home so we can start to ask google for these different types of data as it pertains to a location and then we find the common identifier so that's you know scenario one scenario two is let's go to the random act where for some reason it's a road rage incident and someone just lost it that day maybe they were using their map app to navigate them from one location to another. So we could actually provide Google some basic location information. And maybe this is a 300 meter circle directly on the highway where this incident happened. And we could ask Google for any device that you guys have records of passing through this circle from this time to this time. And just because we see a device doesn't mean it's the suspect. But let's say 30 seconds before this incident happened, another car drove by has nothing to do with this crime, that's a witness. And law enforcement absolutely should go out and seek this person out, interview them, find out what's happening. Maybe they see a similar description of a van that was following this very easily identifiable yellow Jeep. And again, it opens doors into the
1: investigation. If there's one thing to be optimistic about in this case, I would agree that it's this angle that Carlson is working. He said himself it's already opened doors for the Brown County Sheriff's Office. And after connecting Sergeant Carlson with SAI, it sort of opened a door for us. Because SAI is now assisting in the investigation and analyzing the data which the Brown County Sheriff's Office has obtained. And if anyone can step in and make sense of the data, it's SAI. So I'm hopeful that's where things are headed. But we can't stop there. Carlson stressed this to us several times over. He says that more than anything right now, what they need, is for someone to come forward.
8: Well, I like to think some of the angles I'm kind of creating will help solve this case, but I know someone contacting us coming through this, giving the information that matches things we already know, will solve this case.
1: There's somebody out there that knows everything, that knows exactly what happened and knows why. Carlson says they already have some solid information they're working off of. Now all they need is for someone to speak up and corroborate what they already know. And this is where I'd like to make my final stand, a plea for new information. It's time to put this case to rest once and for all. If not for Brittany, then for all who have been left in the wake of her murder.
4: You know, people think that, and that time that you forget things. Something that that rocks your world that bad, you never forget. Oh, I tell her how much I've missed her and how much she's missed. That's the thing I can't get by. I miss her every day. Being a mother myself, I know everything she's missing or missed. I can't get past that. I want the day in court when I can look at the person in their eyes And I want to be able to tell them what they took from us. I will know when I talk to that person what's in their heart. And I'll know then and there whether they've been forgiven or they haven't. I'm going to tell them every moment and everything that they have taken from me and taken from my daughter and taken from her daughter.
12: Get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. That's greenlight.com
13: slash odyssey. When I was like one or two, I didn't really understand like all of it. But like ever since I understood it, I've always wanted to figure it out. But I didn't think that it would be this long. But I'll just be happy if they do figure it out. Even though I didn't know her... I still feel like there's something missing. And that's bizarre to me. Yeah, it feels like like if I had like a puzzle, there's just that one piece right up there in the corner that's missing. If you're holding back something you really shouldn't. It's not something to be proud of. It's really not. Because If you're holding back something, you're just adding more and more time to solve this. Say what you have to say and just be truthful. It's honestly the best thing to do in a situation.
5: I reflect on things my sister said. She liked to believe that even when things get tough, it'll never be more than what you could handle. So... That was kind of a big thing that she always said, like, "Hey, things might get rough, but you'll be, you'll figure it out." And I think faith gave her that strength to know that whatever it was, she could overcome it. Oftentimes, when there is a death of a child, you will see families fall apart, and ours never did that. I mean, we had spats where, you know, we didn't understand what was going on, but we always got closer. And still to this day, I'm at my mom and dad's three or four times a week. Like, you know, my kids come down here all the time. It's just, we were always close, but I think that it's brought us all together because it's made us appreciate what time we do have. If Brittany could be here today, she would want Aubrey to feel that embracing love and know that no matter what you know mommy's always gonna love you and you're perfect and I think Aubrey deserves to know that and I think that in knowing her mother I think it'll impact Aubrey just as much as it impacted all of us she was a sister to four other kids she was a daughter a mom that needs to be put out there and I think people need to see her for who she is and who she was and see that She still matters. She didn't deserve to die the way that she did. There is no amount of money or reasoning to end someone's life. She was a 22-year-old stay-at-home mom. There was no debts owed. There was no nothing. And for you to take it into your own hands was wrong. It's been almost 10 years How do you live with the guilt from that for 10 years? How do you see all these podcasts and news broadcastings and Facebook posts and, you know, not feel a little bit of guilt or remorse? How do you feel so empty that you don't feel the family deserves some justice or peace?
9: I never had panic attacks until this happened, and it was a while afterwards that I started having chest pains and I thought I was having a heart attack and I couldn't catch my breath, and come to find out I was having a panic attack. But keeping in touch with the Dotsons, I reached out to them because I wanted to tell them I was sorry that I couldn't save their daughter. It's been a great relationship with them because You know, they let me know what's going on with Aubrey. We've had a discussion, my wife and I, and I've talked about it. I feel like uh, it was God leading me there. You know, maybe there was a guardian angel. Maybe it was Brittany as an angel, because she was dead at this point, leading me to save her daughter. I've been labeled as a hero for saving the baby. I'm not a hero. You know, it's like I did what I was supposed to do. It's what I should have done. Should we stop at every accident or every person broke down with a flat tire on the side of the road? I'm not going down that road. But if you feel compelled to do something, then maybe there's a reason behind it. And that's the reason I agreed to do this podcast is because I want answers for them. I'd like to know myself, but I want it more for Dodsons than anybody else for Aubrey to have that answer someday
1: the only thing keeping this story from being a true whodunit by definition that is is that it hasn't been solved no one has been held accountable for the crime but as I've learned with other cases it's never too late on the bright side tips are coming in interviews are being conducted Sergeant Carlson is as busy as he's ever been with this case And with the data he's obtained, he gets a sense that they're closer to an answer than ever before. But optimism aside, so far, it hasn't been enough. We're still missing something. And since Carlson can't seem to stress the importance of this enough, I will follow suit and say, we need someone to step up. On behalf of the Brown County Sheriff's Office, on behalf of Brittany's husband, Shane, her daughter, Aubrey, and the entire Dotson family, her parents, Dave and Mary, and her siblings, Josh, Dusty, Tanner, and Emily. We need someone to step up. We need you, whoever you are, to come forward with the information that Sergeant Carlson says can put this thing to rest once and for all. He may not be an open book, but I can tell you he speaks with conviction when he says there are people out there who know more than what they've said to authorities. He specifically told me that there's a couple people out there who know exactly what happened. If you're one of those people, we need you to come forward. Again, I'm not just talking to the killer here. If you're listening, I hope that you too feel compelled to finally do the right thing. But if I'm being honest with myself, I'm not banking on that. If this message is for anyone, it's for those who know something but have refused to come forward, letting each passing day be another day of misery for a grieving family who, no matter how hard they try, will never be able to come to grips with this. The fact that Brittany is gone and she's not coming back. The fact that her daughter Aubrey will never truly know and understand the special bond that she and her mother had and instead is left to fantasize about the memories they could have made together. The fact that an innocent, unborn child was lost in all this nonsense. Please, for a moment, try and put yourself in these people's shoes. Actually stop and think about it. The magnitude of it. Because this didn't just happen yesterday. It's been damn near a decade now. And if you need more incentive, there's one more thing I'd like to add. Currently, there's a $20,000 reward at the Brown County Sheriff's Office for any information leading to a conviction. Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV would like to announce that we are offering an additional $30,000, making a total reward of $50,000. You can submit your information through the Brown County Sheriff's Office by visiting browncountyohiosheriff.us. And to our listeners, before we come to an end here, I want to leave you with this anecdote of sorts. Just after I'd started on this case sometime in early 2021, I stumbled on a song that has stuck with me throughout this journey called Forest for the Trees, an old adage I'm sure you're familiar with. In other words, don't get so caught up in the moment that you lose sight of the big picture. Ironically, the song came to me during a late night of research, and I'm talking really late. The point where compulsion has taken over and sightedness has become shorter as a result. As I listened to the chorus, in my naivety I thought, what a great reminder for the true crime enthusiast. Don't miss the forest for the trees. A message fit for an unsolved case. Even more a whodunit. It's not wrong to think of it this way. If anything, this way of thinking is often encouraged. But for me, the meaning has changed over time. These days, I often remind myself not to focus solely on solving this case or stress over finding a resolution, because when you start to do that, you can start to make it about yourself. The purpose of culpable isn't to solve a case. The story is really about Brittany and everything I've just shared about her. And while that may sound counterintuitive to the work we do, I think it might also be some of the best advice you could give in a situation like this, because it's just as true for me as it is for you listeners. For all those internet sleuths out there, for the media, the Brown County Sheriff's Office, Brittany's loved ones, and even the person with information that could help solve this case, it's sound advice. Keep the big picture in mind. Don't miss the forest for the trees. Please tell me I will find
6: Please tell me
11: fall for the trees
1: All stories must come to an end At least on paper But there's a fear that comes with that That it will actually in some way come to an end And not in a good way To everyone listening We're all bystanders in this now What you do with that is up to you But I ask that you do not sit idly by Falling victim to the bystander effect Be like Craig LaBelle the man who stopped on a whim and discovered Brittany and Aubrey that fateful night. Be like Dave and Mary, unflappable, persistent, willing to do whatever it takes to get justice for their daughter. Be like the lead detective, Sergeant Carlson, a champion of our work, who believes the more people that know Brittany's story, the better, and wants nothing more than to solve this thing. Or maybe look to Brittany Stikes for inspiration. Like her parents said, the girl loved a challenge but find some way to make a difference. Tell a friend about Brittany, send love to her family, write an article or post about her, heck, make another podcast about her. There's no right or wrong. Just consider how you can help make a difference. And again, if you have any information or would like to learn more about the reward money, visit browncountyohiosheriff.us. Thank you so much to everybody for listening. I hope to be talking to you again Real soon, the Culpable is a production of Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13, written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper, and produced by Jessica Knoll. Executive producers are myself, Mark Minnery, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsey. Our senior producer is John Street. Additional production by Todd McComas. Editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Dayton Cole, Pat Kicklighter, Adam Townsell, and Caleb Melcher of the Resonate Recordings team. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at resonaterecordings.com. Our theme song and original score is by Dirt Poor Robbins, with additional scoring by Dayton Cole. This episode features the song Forest for the Trees by the Apache Relay. Our cover art is by Drew Bardana. You can follow us on social media at Culpable Podcasts, show notes, as well as bonus content can be found on our website, culpablepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. And lastly, if you have any information about the murder of Brittany Stikes, we urge you to contact the Brown County Sheriff's Office by visiting their website, browncountyohiosheriff.us, where you can anonymously submit your information. Or you can contact Sergeant Quinn Carlson directly at 937-378-4435, extension 130, or by email at Quinn Carlson at bcoso.com. You can also submit your information anonymously through our website, culpablepodcast.com. Thank you for listening.
6: Please tell me I- Please tell me I will find Please tell me I will find Please tell me I will find The forest for the trees